Let's get back to Romans chapter 11. And um, let me read you the text. (laughs) It begins at verse 33. And I need my glasses. Here we go. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. First, let me start by reminding you, you might not remember, but we started this Bible study back in, in, in chapter 11, back in the fall, and I told you a story about the, uh, the, uh, the cornerstone here at Grace of Ann, how this building, in fact, we've built six times here, and I've never, I've never had any input to any of the buildings, except one thing, in the sanctuary, I told them, we have to have a center aisle for brides. I, I, I did say that. Other than that, the other thing that I've contributed to in terms of buildings and what they look like around here is the cornerstone. It's a little, um, it's a white piece of uh, smooth concrete out there amongst all the red bricks. And it's uh, got a text on it. And the text that's written on it is verse 36 of Romans 11. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So uh, what you have here in these last um, four verses of Romans 11 is what's called a doxology. Uh, you know, we sing a doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below. That's, that's the doxology. Uh, the doxology is a, is a, it's a, it's a, I don't know what you call it, a chorus. It comes from a Greek word doxa, um, or doxe. Um, well, the D didn't make it. Um, which means glory. Um, in, in a lot of ways, guys, um, this is a very difficult passage to teach because it's doxology. <laughs> um, doxology, let, let, let me try to illustrate what I mean. We sing a hymn around here. We sing it at Grace of Anne. Uh, it's on page 56 of, of this hymnal, of the Trinity hymnal. It's written by a man by the name of uh, Joseph Addison. Um <clears throat> And, and I, I, I won't sing it to you, but uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous piece of poetry. When all your mercies, O oh my God, my rising soul surveys, when I survey all of your mercies, O oh God, transported with that view, I'm lost in wonder and love and praise. We sing that a lot around here. That Those last words. When, when I consider all of your mercies, when I, when I, when I get a, a glimpse of all of your mercies, as my soul surveys those mercies, I find my soul transported and I'm lost. I'm lost in wonder, in love, and praise. Now, here's my point. What I'm trying to teach you tonight is something about that lostness. Now, when, when we normally use the word lostness in the church, we're talking about people who don't know Christ. That's not, that's not what Addison is saying. He's talking about having gotten a glimpse of God, he finds himself lost 
he um, he can't fully explain what he's sensing and feeling and seeing and knowing. And so he's just caught up and swept away, transported into wonder and love and praise. So my, my task tonight is to try and explain to you that. A piece of doxology. When somebody says, I'm so overwhelmed with what I see about who God is. I'm lost. So that makes it kind of difficult <laughs> to try and, and help you see that when a, when a man who is in it can't even explain it himself. And here is a passage of doxology. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give it some kind of little bit of explanation, but understand, ladies and gentlemen, here is a man who, after having taught what he taught, is in essence saying what Joseph Addison said. I'm lost in wonder and love and praise. I'm lost in doxology. Uh, you know, I to prepare for this, I read all kinds of um, commentaries to try and make sure I don't tell something or say something to you that's false. But there were several of the commentarians who would say things like this. You really ought not even try to analyze this, these four verses. You, um, you just need to enjoy them. Uh, one of the illustrations that was used, it was, he said, it's like a flower. And if you cut the flower up and you look at the, the petals and the, and the stem and the, all the, all the stuff, then you lose the beauty of the, of the rose, of the flower. And he was, what he, what he was advocating is, don't really try to, 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 to analyze this. Just enjoy it. And there's, there's some truth in that, guys. And I, 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 I can't resist my own foolish tendencies in trying to explain some, at least some of it. But understand, this is a piece of, this is, this is where a man is lost. And, and he's, he grapples for words even. Words fail him to try and, and, and express what, uh, what is going on and, when he considers what he's what he's just told you and what he's just written. It's a piece of doxology, ladies and gentlemen. Now, having said that, let, 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 me, give you a, let me give you a principle. Uh, a principle that I think is on display here. How does God grow up his people? How do we as God's people grow up? What, does, what, is, the, what is the procedure? What is the... What is the uh, uh, the modus operandi, not of us, but of God. How does he, how does he grow up his people? Well, this is how he does it. God. By the way, he doesn't come to you in the night and tickle your toes. He doesn't come through your fingertips. He doesn't, he doesn't give you, well, I, in the main, he doesn't give you experiences to, to move you on. Here's how he does it. He, he starts with the mind. And then from the mind, it grabs hold of the heart. And from there, once the heart is captured, he appeals to the will. Now, guys, the reason I say that is because that is what is on display here. Paul has been teaching for 11 chapters and 20 and 32 verses things about the mercies of God. He's taught the great truths of justification by faith. 
He's taught union with Christ, which we'll talk about a little bit in a minute. He's talked about some wonderfully glorious things. He has appealed to your mind. And then, having done that, having, having thought through these rich and glorious truths that he's teaching, he is overcome. And that's what this doxology is. For of him, and through him, and to him, or all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. It's all he can say. What do you mean it's all he can say? It's all he can say! Because words have failed him. But he is, in these four verses, enjoying what his mind has feasted upon in his heart. And then, he opens up with chapter 12. Therefore, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's what we'll do in the fall, chapter 12. But what has he done? He's then appealed to your will. He has taught you all of these wonderful things. He has himself paused over these glorious things simply to worship the God who this describes. Having done that, he then appeals to your will and tells you to do certain things. Guys, imperatives always grow out of indicatives, never the other way around. Do you get that? Imperatives, do this. Always come out of indicatives. This is who you are. Not, do this and become that. The imperative, the command, always grows out of the indicative. Who are you? Well, he's told you that for 11 chapters and 32 verses. And so, knowing who I am, knowing what he has done, knowing the provisions that he has made, first of all, he pauses to worship. Having done that, he then opens up chapter 12 by saying, Okay, now, present yourselves as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service of worship, which we'll come to. Lord willing, in the fall. So this is the way, ladies and gentlemen. This is how God grows up His people. He, he comes to you speaking of His glories through the mind in the hopes that it will enrapture your heart so that your will will respond. Never the other way around. It's never your obedience that makes you something. It's always what you are that leads to your obedience. The imperatives grow out of the indicatives. Okay? Now, guys, having said all that, understand that this is, this is hard to teach because we're talking about a man who has, who has paused and finds himself lost in wonder, love, and praise. I'm going to lose it. I bet you can still hear me, though, can you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. See, how much money you could save in this church just on amplification equipment. All right. Um, 
Let's just look at a few of the words. We're, we're going we're gonna to try to look at verse 33 tonight, and then we're going to do the last three verses all next week. But notice the first word, oh, the depth. Um, you know, guys, I, 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 I haven't been asked to write a, a New Testament book, but, you know, it's almost as if if you're looking for words to describe who God is, you're going to ultimately have to use this one. You're going to ultimately have to use the depth. Because it talks about the infinities. It talks about the immensities. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about the deep things of God. Well, there's a sense in which I, I want to suggest to you that the one word that can just, that can adequately be used to Think of everything that God is and, is and He does. Is the word depths. Oh, the depths. I want to read you something. Um, in fact, if you've never read this book, it's still in print. You need to get you one. This is a J.I. Packer book called Knowing God. It was considered the best book that was written in the Christian community in the 70s. But he opens with a, with a quote from a 21-year-old man. I'm not going to read all of it, but I am going to read one paragraph of this 21-year-old man. Listen to what he says. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. Did you get that? There's something improving to the mind just to, just to consider, just to contemplate God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon at age 21, said that. He was, he was grappling with this idea of the depths. The depths and the heights and the limits and the extremities and the immensities and the infinities of God. L listen to this, guys. Um, listen when Paul gets ready to try and explain the love of God. Uh, uh, listen to this. He says... Um, so that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Guys, he comes to the subject and he says, the height, the width, the length, the height, you know, the depth, you know, because there's not enough words to, to convey it. This is all foreign to you, isn't it? This is hard for you, isn't it? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I am telling you that in the 21st century, there is very little contemplation of deity that is going on. 
We'll contemplate the masters. We'll contemplate a lot of things, but just contemplation of... I'm going to do something that I've done here before. And if you've heard me do it, do not answer because I don't want to get the right answer. I want to get the wrong answer. Actually, don't even answer at all. But I've done this before and you've heard me do it. But for those of you who've never heard this, um, I'm, I'm just illustrating my point. If I were to ask you to summarize the character of God in one English word, to eliminate all other English words and find one English word that you thought were, were, was adequate to summarize the character and nature of God, what one, don't answer, what one English word would you use? And I'm saying to you, the majority of you, if you haven't heard this before, the majority of you would use that word. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, you would be wrong. Because that is not the one word that best summarizes the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of this God. The word that best does it, and it falls short, is the word holy. But I'm saying the, one, of the, one of the reasons that we jump to this word is because there is very little contemplation of the deity. Nothing so expands the mind. Nothing so humbles the pride of man. Oh, well, we got a little problem with pride. and, and, and you know. Why, ladies and gentlemen? Because we spend, we spend very little time contemplating. contemplating the deity. And once you do, you run out of words. Just like here. The, the, the best word that he came up with, at least at this point, is he comes up with the word depth. Um, now, he says, um, Oh, the depth of the riches. Now, guys, what does he have in mind? Again, this is, I don't know. I don't know what he has in mind because it is, a, it is an occasion where the guy is lost. He doesn't specify. And so I'm, in one sense, I'm guessing. Not in one sense, in the whole sense. I'm guessing what he has in his mind when he talks about when, when he's thinking and he's writing, oh, the depths. What, what is he thinking of? Well, I, I don't know. But let me suggest three things. Three things that might have been on the Apostle's mind. Because he writes about them earlier in, in the Scriptures. Earlier in the book of Romans, excuse me. Here's one, he says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. One of the things that emboldened Paul and made him such, a, such an able and, 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 and determined evangelist was because he knew that the Gospel was not about us! It's not about your personal salvation, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad we're saved people, but the gospel is not about us. Because it's a declaration of the righteousness of God. The gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's good news about the righteousness of God on display in the person of Christ. He says that again in chapter 3. That's, this, that's one of the reasons that I just took this guess. 
in, in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, um, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, uh, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God. When he's thinking about the depths, the th- one of the things that comes to mind is, what I have seen on display in this gospel message is a, is a, is a revelation, is an announcement about the righteousness of God. Here's my second guess. It has to do with union. That is, I, I'm <laughs> it's in Romans chapter 6, folks. You know, I, uh, this is something that the, that the evangelical church hasn't gotten very well. Did you know, folks, that you're not simply saved, but that you are in union with Christ? This is in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, and I'll just read it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ladies and gentlemen, I am in union with Christ's past. I am buried with him in death. And I am in union with Christ in his future, in his resurrection. I'm going to walk in newness of life. I just didn't get a ticket to heaven stuck in my pocket and sprayed with a coat of asbestos. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, I have been brought into union. You're married, ladies and gentlemen. You're married to Christ. And that's why I said this Sunday, and I'm going to say it again this Sunday, the sex act is supposed to be the greatest picture of our union with Christ to be found anywhere in the Bible. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Think about that. That's one of the reasons that, that sexual purity is so is to be so lauded and applauded. Because it's a portrait, it's a portrayal of union with Christ. That, that's another one of my suggestions. Here's my third one, and it has to do with grace. You know, um, in chapter 5, oh, ladies and gentlemen... If you're as wicked as I am, would you listen to this? If you're not as wicked as I am, just, just take a nap. But, um, but if you're as wicked as me. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? You are far more wicked than you ever dreamed. And you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. That's called grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. You know, this past Sunday, my my sermon was on about the permanence of marriage. You might recall. Probably don't. But I got a... um, I got an email in response from a woman who obviously had um, somewhere in her past, she had been engaged or involved or gotten an illegitimate divorce. I didn't say that. She said it. And, and what she was doing is, is offering me her services to tell some young woman who was going to divorce her husband, don't do it. That's what she was saying. She said, I want to be available. I would, I would love to see some kind of good come out of the fact that I made such a horrible mis- a choice or mistake. It was, it was really moving. 
And I, I really didn't know how to answer her. I, I certainly didn't want to say, yeah, yeah, I told you you shouldn't have done that. And, and that's, I think that's what the evangelical wants to do. So I wrote her back and I said, I, I, it was just a sentence because I don't type very well. Um, I said, thank you for your sweet note. That was awfully kind. But just know this. That there is grace that is greater than all our sin. When sin abounded, grace did superabound. All I'm saying, guys, is this. When Paul is writing about the depth of the riches, I think at least part of that was in his mind. Some of that was in his mind. When he contemplates grace that is greater than all my sin. When he contemplates that the, that the end result of the, of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit is that I'm in union with Christ. And when he discovers that the gospel is the declaration of the righteousness of God, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches. That's kind of hard to exegete. Because he's caught up and lost in the beauty and the abundance and the bounty of God's riches towards people like us. He mentions, of course, wisdom and um, uh, the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, oh, gosh. Um, how unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable his way. Guys, I don't know how many translations we got in this room, but I'm telling you, you would find a whole lot of different words in there for those, those two Greek words. Mine, this translation translates the two Greek words, unsearchable and inscrutable. But, but I, I bet you've got different things in your translations. Because Paul has used words that are just kind of, well, I don't know what word to use to translate that. I mean, my goodness, it's just, it's over the top. Yeah, his ways are inscrutable. They're unsearchable. They're beyond. They're past finding out. You know what that means to us, ladies and gentlemen? It means that we must be born again. We must be born because there is none of us apart from his regenerative work that can understand any of his ways. They're past finding out. They're inscrutable. Um, they're unsearchable. I want to read you, I've got eight minutes left, and I want to read you something first, and then I want to do one thing with Acts 17, and I'm done. But there's another quote, and this is a, a lengthy one, and I, I know you don't like to be read to. It's not good pedagogy. Um, but th- this is just, guys, this was written 40 years ago by a guy by the name of Tozer, Anybody ever heard of A.W. Tozer? In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it, has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to utterly be unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. 
This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. What is that error? Low views of God! With our loss of this sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. You know, he wrote this 50 years ago. And he says this loss of, of, of the majesty of God among us, this, this unfamiliarity with how unscrutable and unsearchable are his ways, they are best finding out. i got five minutes now. Let me do one thing and I'll quit. Go with me if you can to um, Acts, Acts chapter 17. Let me tell you really quick a little bit about this story. Um, Paul uh, and Silas uh, split up over some problems that they'd had in some missionary journeys. And so Paul heads to Athens without him to wait on his arrival. That is, Paul is waiting for Silas to join back up with him in Athens. And while Paul is waiting on Silas to, uh, to get to Athens, he is walking up and down the streets of, of Athens and he's noticing that there's gods lining the streets. Uh, you know, phony gods, uh, statues of gods. You know, they got the god of fertility over here and you got the god of uh, uh, the harvest over here and you got the god of the weather over here and you got the god of the military over here and you got the god. Just all up and down the road, he's seeing all these, these, these statues to gods. And so, um, so he goes to the Areopagus, which is the place where all the, the thinkers met to just discuss the religious matters. You know, that's what they do. They, they love to get together and talk. And um, uh, he, he comes to the Areopagus and, and uh, they ask him to say, okay, um, I, we, we want to we hear from you now, buddy. Uh, what, what have you got to tell us? And so but look, read with me beginning in verse 22. This is in Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, or said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. See, what they had done is they'd had all these gods, all these statues up and down the streets, and they thought, well, you know what? We might have missed one. <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't want to leave those gods out, so we, we're just going to stick one up here, and we're going to call him the unknown, the unknown God, just in case, you know, just to cover all our exits. 
make sure that we got all the gods included. And so they put one at the end of the street called the unknown God. He says, and I was walking up down here, I saw all these gods. And he said, and then I saw that inscription to the, to the, uh, to the unknown God. Um, and then he says, and I, I would love to know how he said this, but he says, what therefore you worship as unknown. Uh, other trans- What you therefore worship in ignorance. This I proclaim to you. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the God of the 21st century evangelical church, in many instances, is like one of the statues that line the streets of Athens. And sometimes when I stand up and say, no, this is not the right word, this is the word, I look at an audience and I think, I'm preaching to them the God that they don't know. They don't know this God. They've got some concept of this one, but they don't know this one. It's like this God has become an unknown God. Now, he's preaching this God to them. Now, now, gang, walk with me through this text and see what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it. So what's the first thing that's true about this God he's preaching? He's the creator. So, you know, you know, I know that you had a biology class and, you know, at, um, at, uh, the, the, your high school, it told you that, uh, you know, you couldn't believe that. Well, let me just say this. When Paul, the one who wrote this thing over here in Romans chapter 11, got ready to preach to the people at Areopagus uh, about the real God, he started with the fact that he created. Um, everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by hand, hands by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself. Wait, let me back up. As though he needed anything. Gang, have you ever sang that song? God has no hands but your hands and no feet but your feet. Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, if the only feet and hands that God has are mine, he's in big trouble. He has no needs. He doesn't need the church. He chose to love the church. Um, Since he, uh, oh, yes, though he needed it, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, everybody, here's, here's the application of the night. Everybody, take a nice, clean, deep breath. All together now. One, two, three. You know where you got that? Do you know where that came from? This God. This God gave you. And that chair that you're sitting in and the Bible that you're open and the watch on your wrist and the comb in your pocket, the pen in your purse and the, and the money in your wallet. He gave you all that too. It says he gives to mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face. Who was that? I was Adam. Having determined, oh I love this, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He, he, He put people in certain parts of the globe 
that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. We live. We move. We have our being. That's hard to explain. When Paul was, when he got finished teaching everything that he could tell us about the great gospel, what he then did is said, you know, the only appropriate response to what I've just told you is worship. That's all I can do. And may I say to you, it's kind of hard to explain to you somebody's worship. What's going on? All I can tell you is that he uses some words that I think can be understood that he is overcome by the righteousness of God found in the gospel which tells of a grace that is greater than all our sin that leads us to a union with Christ. Now, how do you respond to that? Our Father, I do pray that you would um, take my uh, vain babblings and my um, my limitation, limited ability to grapple with all this and use what's been said to stir your people to greater heights. Might they find themselves for a second, for a moment, for a brief, passing, fleeting moment, just lost lost in wonder and love and praise for a God who has done what He has done to save people as wicked as I am. What a God You are, Father. Forgive us that we have lowered You, that we have lessened You, that we have limited You, that we have described You in language that does not befit You. The only language that befits You is language that we don't possess. We're out of words. But oh, Oh, the depth of your riches towards us. Will you make our prayer tonight, of course, in Jesus' name.